You're listening to Art of the Flow. Hey guys, welcome back to the second part of the Justin Feinstein interview. Uh, the second part is just as good as the first, I promise. Really excited to share this with you guys. I just want to, before we get started, give a shout out to our sponsors so the rest of the show will be uninterrupted. Of course, I want to thank Floataway for sponsoring the show. www.floataway.com is their address. They make tranquility tanks, float cabins, float arounds. If you want some of the nicest tanks that are in existence, you want to go to www.floataway.com. We also want to give a shout out to Float Helm. They're the software that we use at the Float Shop. And I know Lance is uh, merging over to Float Helm as well. And I believe uh, Amy is now going to be uh, checking it out as well. So uh, we're big fans of it here on the show. And we recommend you go to floathelm.com to check them out. Enjoy the rest of the interview without any ad breaks. And we will see you next week. May I ask about, uh, so speaking to a few people that have worked with you, uh, they basically weren't super interested in floating. And it wasn't until maybe you forced them into a float tank or they, they finally tried it. And then they get out and they go, oh, oh, I see why you've been jumping up and down, why you're so excited about this. Okay, I would like to be part of this. It's something I've heard from several people you work with. Um, do you think after this, if, if, peer-reviewed study comes out if you know once it gets through and everything do you think that could help um people not need to uh have somebody grabbing them by the ear and getting into a float tank to try to experience it first and maybe other research facilities wanting to uh install their own float centers and start doing their own research could this be a zeitgeist moment for floating research i sure hope so dylan you know it's lonely uh from my <laughs> from my vantage point and and i want other colleagues and collaborators and researchers to to take this seriously because I think it, it, it has so much potential and it's untapped at this point. And, you know, we could have a hundred different researchers studying flotation and all of them could be doing different aspects of how floating might benefit a different ailment right. or a different mind process. And there's really uh, so much room for discovery here. So my hope is as the peer-reviewed science starts coming out, you will see researchers taking this seriously. You know, I, um, I have a conference that uh, Dr. Kalsa has spent the past six months putting together here at LIBOR. It's going to happen in two weeks. <laughs> um, wow. It's called the Interoception Summit. You could, you could actually mm -hmm. see it online. I think it's isummit2016.org. That will be in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's really going to be a neat conference. We're going to, we've invited world's, the world's experts on interoception. And we have people coming from Germany, from England, from Canada, from all over America to Tulsa for a couple days. And we're going to understand and get into the nitty gritty of how interoception and mental health could be uh, synergistic. You know, how could the study of interoception lead to new treatments in mental health? How could the study of interoception lead to new ways of predicting 
what disorders people might have or the severity of their symptoms or the time course or the treatments that might work best for them. So we, we're, we're really going to spend a couple of days brainstorming these issues. And one of the things that I'm really keen on doing is making sure each and every one of these experts in interoception has the opportunity to float when they come visit us. <laughs> That's awesome. That so is I've actually, really cool. You know, <laughs> really we only cool. have two float tanks, so that, you know, we have over 100 people coming in. So um, my hope is that the float centers in yeah. Tulsa, we now have over four float centers, oh, will be able to step wow. up. And I've reached out to all of them, and I and we're gonna we're gonna get each one of these people in for a float. That's so cool. And I'm gonna use my time at the conference to talk about floating as a form of interoception and as a potential treatment that targets interoception. Can we talk about interoception a little bit here? I I just want all our listeners to know what what that means. What does that mean to you and to these well, people? Well, I I think you know the it's a it's a relatively new concept, but the basic notion is how does the brain process the internal world of the body how does it receive signals from the viscera the heart the gut the lungs the immune system even mm -hmm. and on a moment-to-moment -moment basis how does it map all of these signals that are coming into the brain and how does it use that snapshot to tell you how you're feeling how is your body doing are you in a state of homeostasis or is something wrong? Is something off? Do you need to attend to the needs of your body and adjust your behaviors? And so interoception is really this concept that really looks into how does the brain map these sensations and make sense of them. And it's new to the extent that we've only in the past maybe 15, 20 years discovered that there are dedicated pathways from which the internal body communicates with the brain itself. And these dedicated pathways, um, how should I put this, seem to be highly formed in humans, much more so than other animal species. And we also know that it's these very pathways that are dysregulated in conditions such as anxiety. Is this the, the Salience Network you're talking about? Yeah, so the Salience Network the salience. is kind of the, um, it's comprised of two areas, the, the anterior insula and the anterior cingulate. And these two regions are in some ways at the top of the food chain when it comes to interoception. So as the heart, for example, is delivering information beat by beat to the brain about how it's doing, it's going through the spinal cord and through the vagus nerve all the way up into the brain itself and stopping in areas like the brain stem and then going up into the thalamus and then the insula. And then it reaches the salience network. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think the salience network is playing a role in interoception. And I think it, it, it's playing a fundamental role in trying to adjust your behavior to when things are going awry. And so uh, um, interoception, you know, as a concept is still relatively new and we're just beginning once again to scratch the surface. So this conference happening in a couple weeks is trying to unite the field by bringing together all the experts and mm -hmm. charting a way forward. A big part of this conference 
is we're going to have a whole section of it called the roadmap. And the hope is by the end of it to create a roadmap for different ways of studying interoception and different ways of using it to help people uh, uh, with mental health conditions. Will Dr. Saeed be uh, speaking or presenting there? Absolutely, yeah. Dr. Khalsa is, is, is kind of the uh, main person in charge of organizing all of this, oh, wow. but it's been a group effort. It's going to be a library-wide conference. Maybe I'll take it to another community question then. Uh, in which phase are patients with anxiety and PTSD disorder contraindicated for floating in order to risk traumatization or too deep and fast going regression? Uh, basically, um, do you have any input on um, when somebody shouldn't be getting into a float tank? I think you have to tread cautiously with all the psychiatric conditions. And the reason is because it hasn't been studied before. You know, I wish I could look at a peer-reviewed study and say, it seems to help people with PTSD. But there hasn't been a single peer-reviewed study mm -hmm. on PTSD and floating. Mm -hmm. All we have is anecdotes. All we have is a person who came into our center and came out and said, wow, I feel a lot better. But what we don't know is how many other people with the same condition came in and didn't say a thing or ran out of the center and didn't tell you. And the truth is we don't know what the adverse effects are of floating. Things could be happening at your center right now and the person comes out and maybe they're too embarrassed to talk about it or maybe they just don't want to open up to a stranger and tell you about some of the emotional issues they were suffering through. And because of that, I think as a field, it's very important we tread cautiously. Now, if someone comes in with PTSD and really wants to try floating, what I would encourage you to do is make sure they go slowly into it. Maybe spend that entire first session with the lights on. Maybe uh, use music or some sort of uh, guided audio to help make sure they don't go too deep too quickly. One of the common things you see with PTSD is dissociation, where they could literally just stop communicating with the environment. And it may be very difficult to wake them up out of that float. Um, in terms of re-traumatization or flashbacks, those are very possible things that could come up during a float, and we just don't know how common that is yet. Mm. So we're going to be doing those studies, and you know we're in a good place to do that. We're, we're attached to a psychiatric hospital. We have on staff licensed psychiatrists, licensed psychologists who could attend to these things as they come up in real time. And we're going to be keeping close track of these things as they do come up and in our papers reporting the base rates of these things. So you could get a sense of, you know, is this pretty rare or is this happening in pretty much everybody? And until those studies are done and until we know that information, you know, my only guidance is to tread cautiously. I wouldn't be pushing these people to do something they're not ready to do. And just keep in mind, they have a very fragile brain. It's been through a lot. It's been traumatized. Mm -hmm. And the last thing we want to do is, is, is cause more harm than good. Now, do you believe there are people that should not float? Are there people with certain conditions, whether it be uh, mental or physical conditions, that should not be in a float tank? Well, yes and no. Um, I think we're still learning. I think there's going to be populations that we learn about um, in some of our research that may show that we have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. You know, what? just to give you an example, a concrete example, 
take very severe depression, right? We don't know if this environment is going to exacerbate some of the symptoms. So we, we spoke a lot about the default mode earlier, and we know that depressed patients have a hyperconnected default mode. We also know depressed patients have extremely ruminative minds. They're, 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 they're always thinking about themselves and how horrible life is. And now you're in an environment that removes all of the external distractions that might take up their mind, and maybe it could actually make that rumination go up twofold. And it's like a megaphone now in their ear, mm -hmm. and all they hear is themselves and their ruminations. And maybe that could actually cause more harm than good. We don't know yet. And so, you know, I don't have an answer in terms of a specific population that we just should say, no, you can't float. Mm -hmm. um, but we may learn that there are certain populations or certain ailments that we want to, you know, maybe tread cautiously with or maybe... Uh, uh, decide that floating is no good for them. Now, you know, with that said, I think there certainly are conditions like certain skin conditions uh, where you wouldn't want to be floating just because of how painful it would be if, mm -hmm. if you had all this salt sort of coming through. But in terms of mental conditions, I think we're just beginning to learn what works and what doesn't work. What about kidneys? Um, I've heard people with kidney problems have... Uh, I may be wrong here. Their body has a hard time breaking down the magnesium or it, it secretes too much. I, I, I think, you know, before we, we would be able to answer that, we first have to answer whether or not any magnesium is getting into the body to begin yeah. with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, and that's still an open question. We're, we're pursuing that uh, um, this year by, by looking at magnesium levels before and after floating. But... In the next uh, year, we're going to have at least some preliminary data to speak to that. Okay. And I understand that one has quite a large body of participants in it, which will be, which will be nice. Absolutely. A large, much larger study than we've seen before, so we're really excited. Yeah, I think that will be important. Is you know, A lot of the early float research tended to be pretty small sample sizes. The effects were large, which is nice to see in a small sample size, but of course you want to see it replicated in a much larger sample, and, and we're hoping to be able to do that. And my perception is that we have a long way to go as far as research goes. I mean, there's so much to be explored. We're just kind of touching the the edge, the the smallest part of it. But as we're seeing some positive results and some significant results, do you feel that it will become easier for researchers to get grants, to find the money to move forward? Will this all make this process easier? I sure hope so. You know, grant money is a, it's an important aspect of any type of research. It's, it's pretty much impossible to do research without grant money. Um, I'm going to be applying for those grants for flotation specifically over the next year and years to come. And we'll see how the granting agencies actually receive this application. I remember speaking to Tom Fine and, you know, they, they tried quite a few times and unsuccessfully. And one time they actually finally got it scored by the, the federal government, the National Institute of Health. But in the end, they ended up not funding it because it just wasn't quite good enough of a score. So we'll see. I, you know, fingers crossed that we could provide enough preliminary data and solid publications to convince them that this is worth pursuing. But grant money is always going to be a perennial issue, and we need to make sure that we could 
we could obtain that money in order to keep the research going. Awesome. Uh, Connor Nabe, I believe it's pronounced Nabe, wants to know, uh, after anxiety, uh, what's next? What, what are you interested in studying? Where do you see it going? Anorexia? PTSD, what are your highest priorities? Mm. Well, you know, anxiety is so ubiquitous. It's part and parcel of almost every mental illness. For example, uh, for a while, people always thought of depression and anxiety as being separate. It turns out over 50% of patients have both. Hmm. So it's oftentimes comorbid. Um, PTSD is part of anxiety. Anorexia nervosa is in some ways, an anxiety yeah. disorder. I mean, the nervosa piece is actually trying to highlight that part of it. And there's a lot of eating disorder researchers who actually view anorexia nervosa as a type of anxiety disorder. So I think, you know, anxiety is really going to be what we're going to be focused on for the next few years, at least, if not longer. I don't really have too many plans beyond it. Um, one thing, if I had to choose a, 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 another condition to go after it would probably be addiction. Now, keep in mind, the reason a lot of people are addicted is because they're self-medicating their anxiety. Hmm. Oftentimes, the drugs they're taking, they're taking in order to get rid of their anxiety. Hmm. So whether it be alcohol or some other uh, type of drug, for example. So um, it's still studying anxiety in some ways to look at addiction, but where I think it could be very useful is in opiate withdrawal. This is um, just purely anecdotal. It goes all the way back to John Lennon and him buying a float tank in the late 70s to overcome his heroin addiction. And I've heard many stories of people overcoming their withdrawal symptoms from heroin by floating. And anyone who understands opiate addiction will realize there's nothing worse than going through withdrawal. And oftentimes that's the reason why people can't come off these drugs is because of those horrible withdrawal symptoms. So if we could ease the pain of that withdrawal in any way, shape, or form, I think we have a very strong possibility of easing the crisis that's developing in this nation with opiates. Wow. So, you know, if I had to answer that question in terms of what would you do outside of the anxiety disorders, I think that would be a, an awesome area of study. Cool. But keep in mind, there are a lot of symptoms that come with withdrawal, and some of those symptoms might not be so good for the float tank water. Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> 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 Something to consider. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I had about 50 questions there while you were talking, and they've all gone poof with that, too. Uh, <laughs> Just speaking about water there, um, how does how does Liber maintain their water there? Do you guys, I'm assuming you guys use hydrogen peroxide and UV. Um, uh, am I... Am I right there? Absolutely, yeah. So UV peroxide is definitely the way to go. We, we researched this heavily. We, we spoke to all the world's experts. And it's about twice as powerful as chlorine as an oxidative force. Now, the key is you have to have sufficient amount of UV. So we have two different long UV tubes that, go, uh, that are quartz tubes. And um, we also have another uh, UV system that has four different tubes or four different uh, UV bulbs in a stainless steel contraption that helps ref reflect the light towards the water. 
and we got that from a water sanitation plant, and they use that to take uh, sewage uh, 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 and make it drinkable, basically, sewage water. <laughs> Oh wow. wow! So we just so, pick these up at Goodwill, cool. or well, they're, they're, the more the, the 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 more powerful the UV, the more expensive. Obviously, um, I could tell you Orange County, California, is now using UV peroxide as its main form of water treatment, and they're mm. taking recycled water and making it drinkable using cool. this. So UV peroxide is definitely the way to go. Uh, we've been extremely pleased. We also use reverse osmosis water, and I think that helps keep oh, the water okay. clarity. And to be honest, we, we haven't had any issues at all with our water because of the system. And the key thing is just make sure you're keeping your peroxide somewhere between 50 to 100 parts per million, and you should be fine. Now, what about um, getting in there and scrubbing? Are you the one that has to get in there every week and scrub <laughs> the tank clean, or is somebody else uh, lucky enough to do that for you? Well, we are lucky enough to have uh, people who, who do do that on awesome. uh, several times a week. <laughs> you know, we, we work with people who have pretty severe anxiety, and part of that anxiety is OCD-like symptoms where cleanliness uh-huh. is paramount. Yeah. So we try to keep our facilities very clean. Um, we, we, we've created a very detailed sort of protocol that goes through all the nuances down to the, to the scum line and the filter and everything in between. So yeah, I'm not doing it personally, but I'm overseeing the process <laughs> yeah. and, and making sure that the standards are, are as good as it gets. Cool. Cool. <laughs> uh- Doctor, <laughs> thanks. That's a good question. That's, <laughs> no, I'm just having a little bit of fun there. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Dr. Kalsa had uh, brought up anorexia nervosa during his speech about interoception. And is, so are, are you the only one doing float research or are other people doing their own studies using the same uh, data sets or the same subjects? What does that look like at Liber? Did that question even make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Liber is a, a, a community of, of neuroscientists that all have similar interests. And that's one of the nice parts of working here. So we do have other people at Liber who are actively interested in flotation. Uh, uh, Saib Khalsa, who you just mentioned, is one of them. And he's the director of uh, the first study ever done in floating and anorexia nervosa. And I'm collaborating him, collaborating with him very closely on that project. But we also have people like Kyle Simmons and Martin Paulus who are who are basically uh, on the ground floor working with me on these float projects, and and I consider them brothers in this endeavor. And so yeah, it's not just me; it's it's a whole collection of people here at Liber that are very interested in flotation. And, you know, I'm, I'm the director of the lab, but on top of it, we have all these other uh, people who are helping out in very meaningful ways. So if you're specifically looking at, or I should say generally looking at anxiety, is it possible somebody else in your group could be looking at something more specific? Absolutely. Over the next few years? Okay. Absolutely. Um, and just on that subject, have there, are there any updates that you might know about, about anorexia nervosa um, and floating? Not, not since the conference. I think, you know, the, part of the problem is it's very difficult to recruit um, uh, uh, people with anorexia nervosa. In fact, uh, uh, just yesterday we had the first male with anorexia nervosa floating. And it's extremely hard to find males with anorexia nervosa. I think, it, you know, 10 to 1 ratio, female to male for anorexia. Okay. 
And the study's ongoing. I'm hoping by spring of next year we should have it wrapped up. And uh, the hope is, based on uh, the data, we might be able to move to more acute, uh, acutely ill people who are maybe even inpatients. And that will be the next okay. phase of that research. But that's going to be a little while away. It's all very exciting, though. I gotta say, just uh, I, I f again, I think it was Dr. Saib Kulsa who who showed. Uh, I think it's two years running now. A graph of how often interoception is brought up, um, and uh, it's an exponential curve, and it's an aggressive exponential curve. In fact, the most recent one that he showed, it was an incredible. I mean, a thousand percent spike probably over the last year uh, about how often. Uh, that's mentioned, I believe, in published papers, I believe was the yep. criterion for yep. that. And uh, so to be researching floating within interoception is just so cutting edge. It's just so exciting. And to think that this could be a new wave of wellness for people is absolutely mind-blowing to me, that we're all in a community that is part of this, uh, all doing our different parts for sure, but all part of it is so exciting to me. Well, thank you for that, Dylan. And, and you know, as I said earlier, we're, we're, we're just getting going. So the, the, fun, right. the fun is just about to begin, you guys. <laughs> oh, so speaking of fun, um, here's another fun one. This is from uh, Nikki uh, oh, Steinkogler, I believe is her last name. Uh, she says, regarding Ricardo de la Costa, I hope I said that right as well, and his neuroverse EEG studies, do they plan to get a bigger field with this, let's say worldwide? And would it be, um, would it be interesting? Would it be interested to integrate EEG Neuroverse in my studies in Austria? Whom should I contact? Do I need a profession in EEG measuring to analyze the data? And how about the costs? So if you want to answer her question specifically, that's great. But I also think just in general, if you want to infer about um, his feelings towards them being in float centers and how to read them, I would love to know that. Yeah, so so uh, Ricardo Gildacosta is a, a close friend and collaborator. He owns a, uh, he's the CEO, I should say, of a, a uh, uh, small company, startup company in San Diego called Neuroverse. And he's developing this wireless, uh, very slick uh, uh, frontal EEG system called a brain station. And right now it's totally proprietary. Um, we're one of the only labs in the world using this technology. And he has visions very big visions that one day anybody could go out and buy one of these devices and use it either in floating or meditation or sleep or just in their day-to-day -day life and in real time be able to see their brain waves and what brain state they're in and modulate their behavior based on the signals that they're getting. So it is a form of neurofeedback, if you will, and Definitely, his hope is that one day it could be there. Now, it's going to take a lot of work. He, he's perfecting the technology. He's running the studies. He's collaborating with partners like us at LIBOR. And it could take several years or more before we get to the point where this will be available to the public. But definitely, one day, that's his hope. And I do believe that you as an individual should be able to do this and learn something about your own brain. So exciting. <laughs> I cannot wait for that day. We will be queued up to, to order those at the float shop. <laughs> um, Jack Luke asks, uh, if, um, 
would you like the industry to conduct a massive floater survey, questionnaire, or customer self-assessment for research purposes? Is there anything that you could glean from the rest of us that you would like to apply to your research center? Yeah, absolutely. I think as we start doing studies and, you know, tens or hundreds of people, it would be lovely to know whether the findings replicate in thousands of people. And so what would be really neat is once we learn what those measures are that seem to show the, the, the biggest change, if you will, we could then take those same measures and do industry-wide type studies and get data points that are much more massive than what we're able to do in our two float center. And I, I do think that would be an awesome approach and there could be some merit to that. I also think that there's still a lot of infrastructure we have to build up to do those sorts of studies, including IRB infrastructure and how to get ethical approval so we could then publish this data. Because it's always fun to do an industry study that we could show at the conference, but ultimately you want this to be published to have the biggest impact. So we'll get there. I think uh, I, I do think it's an area that I'm definitely interested in pursuing. And um, I did have Jim Hefner actually out here uh, this week from just float in Pasadena. They have 11 float tanks out there. And we spoke about that very issue this past week. So, so hopefully in the next few years, we could, we could really uh, take that from just a thought experiment into something that is really feasible. Well, let me ask, would you like feedback from the community regarding um, negative effects of floating or people that they maybe consistently or we could find in the data consistent people who shouldn't be floating or have negative effects? Um, Absolutely. Is, is that yeah, I, I, I think, you know, if, if anyone's out there and listening to this, if, if you ever have a negative incident or something comes up that you didn't realize was possible during a float, definitely feel free to shoot me an email. I love to, to hear about those stories and it helps me in terms of, you know, preparing for the unexpected, if you will. And uh, absolutely, I think in some ways learning about these adverse effects can only improve the experience altogether. So I guess we got to do that, guys. <laughs> Let's get it going. Um, so uh, we had Jay Nichols on recently who uh, love, love to go full circle here, circle here because we were talking to him about how they um, were using the EEG uh, readers on people surfing and in the float tanks and how it seemed to be on a, on a different timeline scale, some very similar effects between the two. Uh, and I'm just curious, uh, it's a little bit oddball there, but um, how has water impacted you uh, in your life or during your, during your time uh, floating, uh, during, your, during your time researching floating? Yeah, I, I got to say, I've spent a lot more time in water these past few years than I've ever have. I, I do think it's it's amazingly healing. I, one of the things I I think I said at the conference one year, but it's so true. Um, you know, opening a float center and in our case, a float research center is the exact opposite of the nothingness you're trying to obtain, right? Yeah. And there's so much nuance and detail that goes into creating this experience and then likewise you know trying to research a new treatment for anxiety and stress it turns out could cause quite a bit of anxiety and stress mm -hmm. so for <laughs> me uh, floating has been a huge help in sort of buffering that if you will and um, water in particular I think has healing properties I also have a, a jacuzzi at home and I use that regularly 
I think a good shower every now and again is, is extremely <laughs> helpful. It's, it's, there's something about water that does seem to reset the nervous system. And it does it naturally. And it is very reliable. So I don't know what it is exactly about water. But that seems to be the critical ingredient. And when you look at our zero gravity chair and ask, you know, what is that condition missing? Mm -hmm. Well, water is probably the prime ingredient. Mm -hmm. So uh, I agree with Jay to some extent. Uh, there is some very natural, unique healing properties of water all by itself. Mm -hmm. And let's discover what that is. I don't, I don't think we'll ever have a water replacement, that's for sure. But I'm very curious in terms of what are the mechanisms of how water is doing. Well, on that note, I'd like to ask a, what might be a little bit of a weird question. So bear with me here, guys. But uh, I think um, it could almost seem like a dystopian future where we're so boggled, bogged down with the stimulus of a thousand screens on throughout the day. Um, and uh, we're... We're always plugged in. There's always stimulus coming at us, video, audio, all this stuff um, that, okay, we use float tanks to disconnect from all of that, to, to, um, to set, reset back to zero. Like that's become our answers. We have to experience complete zero as opposed to simply being in balance with nature or having less screen time, less stimulus, et cetera. D is that how you see it or do you see it as a different tool altogether? It's hard to say. I mean, I think for the average, just typically stressed out person in society, they might be using it in that way, right? But if you take somebody who's clinically and chronically anxious, and maybe that way their whole life, you know, my hypothesis is that floating is going to do a lot more than just reset things. It's going to give them an experience they've never had before. You know, I think for the, the average healthy person, they could come out of a float and say, wow, that was really relaxing. But they may have felt that level of relaxation in other moments in life. When you take these disordered brains who are chronically anxious, they may have gone their entire existence never feeling that before. And one of the things I actually have done is I've opened up floating to all the mental health professionals in the state of Oklahoma at our center. <laughs> so every week we're getting new people from different parts of the state co coming really? in and trying. Oh, awesome. And, and the way I, I, I presented to them is I said, you know, if, if, you, if you're ever going to want to refer your patients to our studies, you better know what it is you're doing. <laughs> so experience it. Come on in and cool. try it out and see, see for yourself. And I had um, one specific mental health professional who, turns out, had severe chronic anxiety. And it's not that uncommon, actually, for mental health professionals to suffer from mental illness themselves. And it, they tend to gravitate towards the field anyway. And she started crying when she told me what the float did because she said it was the first time she knew what it felt like to not be anxious. And it was very bittersweet because for her, now she knew what it was like and she wanted to be there again and again and again. Um, and she knew also that her brain did revert back after just having a single float to her normal state, but she desperately wanted to get back to that state of calm. 
And that's to me where I think it's going to be fascinating to, to watch what happens is when you take these brains that have never been in that state of consciousness, of total peace and calm and quiescence, that's going to be a transformative moment. Hmm. And so we'll see. I, I, I don't know how common those sorts of experiences are going to be, but once we start testing these patients, and we, we've already started, uh, we're going to get a much better sense. Do we know, um, do we have any metrics for seeing how long the, relaxa- the lowered anxiety after a float lasts? We're, we're measuring it, Dylan. Come on, <laughs> come on. <laughs> next, next, year, next, next year's float conference, okay. if all goes well, we should have an actual data set to show you how long the experience lasts post-float. Wow, very well. I'll pre-order my ticket tonight. All right. <laughs> Sweet, that sounds great. Amy Lentz, do you have any more questions? We've got Justin on. Uh, I think we uh, we hit most of my questions. Um, I just had one more thing about, well, it doesn't really pertain to you, but it came up at the conference about CO2 levels. Um, uh, I've sort of heard, like, some people have been worried that we don't have proper air circulation and stuff like that in some of these float tanks. I know you with those float-away magic tanks you have. I know you got all your circulation, all that down pat, but um, some people have actually been connecting um, high CO2 levels to really trippy floats or really quote unquote psychedelic floats. Um, Do you believe that CO2 levels is something that we really need to be um, looking at with our float tanks and monitoring and making sure we're running consistent air in our in our tanks because right now in the industry it's the wild wild west for for circulation it's a great point it's it's something i i thought about right at the beginning when i started floating in some of these smaller tanks it's really the smaller tanks where this is an issue Um, when you have a large volume of air in some of the more spacious tanks uh, you're not going to get much co2 buildup over the course of an hour but in the smaller tanks we've actually done some measurements and you could get into really high levels of CO2 after about 45 minutes. And to the point where it's no longer safe to be actually in the wow. tank breathing that air. There's actual OSHA guidelines that would suggest that the levels we're reaching are actually way too high. Wow. So, you know, I think with the smaller tanks, for sure, there needs to be some air circulation at a very minimum to clear out the excess CO2. Uh, typically what you see with the higher CO2 levels is not a psychedelic experience, but rather the feeling of stuffiness, uh, like the air is getting too hot or you're having difficulty breathing, and it could also cause uh, higher levels of fatigue and tiredness and drowsiness. It could cause headaches, and at really high levels, it could cause panic. And I've studied CO2 as a form of causing panic. And I could tell you that we got to be very careful as an industry because we don't want people's first float to be one of panic. Mm-hmm. And this happened uh, to me when I was interviewing with the Wall Street Journal. You guys could go back to that article, but it pissed me off because uh, she took my, my comments totally out of context. Oh, wow. And her first float was a bad first float and essentially was in a very small tank And what she reported to me is around 40 minutes into the experience, 
she started panicking. She started grasping for the door, and she opened up the door, and finally fresh air came in, and she could settle down. But it sounded like to me the exact instance of an excess of CO2 buildup that she was experiencing. Hmm. And so I think it is an important question to raise. I think it's something the industry needs to start talking about because if you have first-time floaters coming in and 40 minutes into their float, they start panicking because CO2 was too high, they're never going to come back again. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people that report that jolt. They'll be calm, they'll be calm, and then they'll get a jolt and they'll they'll wake right up. Um, is that similar to, is that could be something from CO2? It could be CO2. And, and hmm. I could tell you, because we, we've made these measurements in some of the smaller tanks, it's definitely happening and it takes about 40 to 45 minutes to really build up to the levels that you would consciously be filling those things. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, you know, I think there's a simple solution, which is let's make sure all of our tanks have some degree of air circulation at least the smaller ones that don't have enough airspace to make sure that it could accommodate the higher levels of CO2. But it is an is issue. I think we got to start addressing it as an industry. Thank you. Uh, speaking of psychedelics, I, I want to ask this in a, in a very generalized way, but um, we had Rick Doblin at the float conference this year talking about floating and, and, uh, and, what was uh, THC, THC pills? No. And I, I'm, I'm MDMA. MDMA. Thank you, Lance. Thank you. Sorry, very, I didn't want to speak on that one. Okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, do you have any feelings that you would want to express about MDMA, THC, psychedelics in general, floating, the, the two of them being in the same subject line? Do you have any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on that, but that would take a whole nother <laughs> podcast, though. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think, you know, uh, uh, suffice to say, I, I think psychedelics and floating have a long history, and it's a history that I don't think we should ignore. But at the same time, I think it's a history that's done more harm than good to the whole industry of floating. And we need to be treading very cautiously if we're going to try to reintroduce that as a theme. And so I have my reservations about the whole Rick Doblin talk to begin with, because I do think that it's bringing our industry back to a time that we were mostly alienated, especially by scientists. Because of John Lilly and all of his uh, sort of stories about high doses of LSD and ketamine in the tank, most of scientists never took this seriously. They viewed it as a far-out niche that was related to hallucinogenic drug use. And they didn't realize that there's a whole slew of the population that doesn't use drugs that could benefit from this. So, you know, my own take is, you know, I think these drugs do have benefit. I think hallucinogenic drugs, when used in the right context, could be beneficial. But I have a lot of reservations about incorporating them into the float experience and um, whether that's a good direction for the industry to go. So um, right now from the outside looking in, in the scientific community, how um, are your peers looking at flotation now? I, I got to say I've been shocked by how well received it's been. 
Nice. When, when I first got into this, I was expecting so much more uh, criticism and skepticism. But what I find when I go to give a talk to other scientists is more often than not a high level of curiosity mm, and finding that this is an extremely well-controlled environment. And at the end of the day, scientists are all about controlling the parameters. Yeah. So I think this is going to be a great scientific tool. And I do think in a matter of years, you're going to see more scientists jumping onto this. Good. And um, we'll see. You know, I, I, I'm excited on that aspect because we could build an entire uh, field of, of flotation research that could be going on for decades. And, and I can't wait to see where this all goes. Well, as uh, as I'm sure I've said in podcasts before, I'm not a religious man, but I do I do feel blessed. Uh, I use that word occasionally that you are running this. To be to be quite frank, I think uh, it's it's just it's an honor to have you on the show, but it's not just an honor and an absolute blessing to have you leading the way. Mm -hmm. um, it's also amazing that you seem to be. Uh, a very good person. I really enjoy speaking with you, and everyone that works at Liber is honestly just a delight. Anybody who was able to speak to them at the float conference afterwards, anything like that, um, they're just really fascinating, positive people, mm -hmm. and uh, I just couldn't be more thankful for that, to, uh, to have that kind of energy and those kind of people leading the way here, to be the voice and to be the first people bringing this out to um, the rest of the, the research industry. Well, thank you guys. And, uh, you know, for me, it's an honor to, to be part of this, this whole uh, burgeoning industry. And, you know, I, I think it, it really is comprised of, of some of the, the nicest, uh, op most optimistic people I've ever met in my life. And uh, I think as a field, let's, let's just keep that momentum going. You know, we, we're, 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 we're growing and, and with growth comes growing pains, but hopefully we could all keep in the back of the of our minds that, you know, there, there, there is a, a higher purpose here, which is wellness and uh, desperate need for wellness for a lot of our society. And I think we're all filling that, that void in, in a very meaningful way. So I'm excited to be part of it. I'm excited to, to see where it all goes and, you know. Let's let let let's let the data speak for itself. Nice, awesome. Well, again, Justin, thank you so much thank for being you. on the show. Thanks for spending so much time with us, and we hope to have you and other people in your lab back uh, in 2017. So, thank you. Awesome, you guys. Take care. Have a good rest of uh, your evening. Thanks. All right, you too. Bye bye. bye. Thank you. And if that doesn't give you a shot of motivation mm. in the arm and make you feel great about what you're doing every single day, <laughs> I don't know what will. I feel like Christmas just came nice. early. We got a great gift Yeah, tonight. we did. And it, it's so exciting to be part of this. It really is yeah. just cutting edge. Yeah. And Lance, thanks so much for asking some really good questions about like how the float centers actually run, water maintenance, all that stuff. I completely didn't think about that, but awesome, important stuff. I thought that was, that was great. Yeah, I was really excited about a lot of those. And um, I, I'm curious how like they run a lot of floats there. They only have two tanks, but they're running... A large portion of the day so i'm curious how that that whole operation works but it's it's you know we had a great podcast tons of information there um 
yeah, like you said earlier, very excited to have him and his team on in uh, 2017 and, you know, maybe have this discussion a little more frequently and stay up to base with what's going on in the world of science and yeah. flotation. That is so. that is certainly the plan. We've been ramping up our how many guests we're having on the show. That was something we wanted to do um, since the float conference. And I feel like we've we've been hitting that mark. So let's let's keep doing that and reaching out to the community of all, all different aspects of the community. Let's keep doing that. Just a, a few little little bit of house cleaning here uh, or housekeeping. Uh, keep your eye on the roundtable discussion icon on artofthefloat.com uh, just to see if there are any coming up when you're listening to this. Uh, beyond that, again, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Art of the Float is where you want to find us. And if you have any questions, follow-up comments on this interview or any episodes, we always love to hear your voice using the speak pipes, which is the gold bar on the left side of the screen when you're at your PC or your laptop. And other than that, again, thanks again to uh, Dr. Justin Feinstein for, for joining us tonight. And just remember, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing. So spend some time there. We'll see you next week.